0: this is where texas politics gets interesting here again are two guys named jason some great guests and cold texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of texas
1: hey everybody welcome back for another week of Yolitics. Uh, we have a very special guest uh this week <clears throat> his uh, you, you may or may not be familiar with him his name is jason whiteley Seems like he's uh, not here more than he's here. It's good to have you back.
2: I miss one episode, and you miss like five, and then I get this kind of treatment.
1: <laughs> maybe it, maybe that's why it seems like I haven't seen you in so long. I was the one who was missing.
2: Yeah, yeah you, you have been missing forever. So uh, welcome back to you, man.
1: Uh, same same to you. Uh, and 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 guess what? I uh, so you know, I was missing before you were missing because I went to. Uh, Alaska, and it's a great place to spend part of your summer when you're in Texas, for sure. Uh, and uh, I, I had something there, and I have had a craving since I left there. Uh, it's from the 907 Ale House there in Alaska, and it is—I've I've pulled it up on my phone here. It's the double-shovel pineapple cider. It was amazing. I'm not even uh, going to say uh, It's about one of the best there. things I've ever sipped from a can. And so I've had this craving ever since— and so we're going to see if Austin East Eastsiders can live up. They've got a pineapple cider of their own. Uh, so it's, you know, Texas versus Alaska today. Uh, it's going to be really hard to beat that double shovel cider uh, from Alaska, though.
2: Why don't you just drink beer that doesn't have fruit in it?
1: <laughs> because, because what's the point? Uh, I mean, I, I, you know what? I Actually, I saved it. Well, first of all, we're back in the 100-degree days again, right. you know. So, I mean, this is perfect for that. It's refreshing. Uh, and you know, to be honest with you, if I have one beer that is a fruity beer out of like fourteen beers, I will save that one for when we record again together because
2: I know that it gets <laughs> under your skin. Uh, I'm having a uh, an amber lager, and this one this one is a good beer, but it always throws me off. It's uh, four sixes, right? Oh uh, yes, yeah. Grit and Glory, and it says on on top of it, heritage runs deep, and it's as Texas as you can get until yeah. Read the fine print on the side. You can't see it. It's so fine. What does it say? Where, where is it actually made? Brewed and canned in San Jose, California. What? Wow. I mean, come on.
1: And it's come in the on. tiny little print where you're putting on your glasses yeah. at the store, or you didn't
2: right. put your glasses on, which is why you bought it. Right. Exactly. Well, you know what I'm excited about is our guests today also yeah. have a beer with us. And we're not in person, unfortunately, because we're all across the state but everyone has a beer. Tell us who's uh, joining us on the uh, episode. We've got
1: H.D. Chambers. He is the executive director of the Texas School Alliance, and we have Dr. Brian Woods, who is the president of the Texas School Alliance. Both of these gentlemen are longtime superintendents here in Texas, so you know they've got stories to tell, and you know that they've seen it all. They both stepped away from those really busy, tough jobs and went into what they're doing now with the Texas School Alliance, which is still a very busy, tough job uh, advocating on behalf of schools. And there's a lot going on with schools, folks. So before we get into all of that, uh, HD, Executive Director, we'll start with you. What'd you pick?
3: Well, I've been in Texas. I picked uh, Estella.
1: I will not judge you because uh, that's refreshing too, and, and I know you're uh, you know baking under that sun there in in Houston.
3: Yep, yeah. it was either that or Michelob Ultra. So. <laughs> okay,
1: so good call, good call. Right, uh, Doctor Woods, would you uh, select?
0: I have an actual Texas beer that would be a a Shiner Bock. Shiner Bock.
2: Yeah, oh, nice. it's right, cool. right, right, I like that. Very yeah, nice. Yeah, right outside San Antonio. And, and for folks who, who may not uh, know the name... Well, right outside of where? S- I'm sorry.
1: San Antonio is what I said. <laughs> you said it right this time. I did. You usually because we say got, San Antonio, don't you?
2: I, yeah, I got tagged by you San Antonio people for uh, <laughs> not being from there. Uh, but, you know, um, somebody's calling me from Houston. I have no idea who this is, and they keep bugging me here. Uh, but for... If you guys don't necessarily recognize the uh, names here immediately, we might have some listeners on our podcast who know these individuals. Uh, Dr. Wood spent, what, 30 years, I believe, 31 years at Northside ISD in San Antonio. Right. And uh, H.D. Chambers has, has spent 37 years, I believe I read, totally in education, but the last 17 or 18 in the Houston area at Stafford ISD and then at Aleef ISD as well, too. So, guys, thanks for being on the podcast here. Uh, let me start with the first question. I, I think I've I've been in Texas 23 years, and I've got to say, I, I don't recollect hearing of the Texas School Alliance. This is superintendent-led. I've heard of the Texas Association of School Boards. Of course, the TEA, the Texas Education uh, Agency, is the, the one that oversees public schools. W- what exactly is the Texas School Alliance, and, and how is it different from everything else out there?
3: Go ahead, H.D., um well it's the same and it starts with a t everything is <laughs> <laughs> has an a in and, it then somewhere. The <laughs> <laughs> and then the differences begin yeah and it's got an a in there somewhere <laughs> no the, the alliance is um and there's a reason jason that most you know most folks haven't heard of the alliance unless you're in the unless you work in administration in a large urban suburban district uh, the alliance has been around for 32 years believe it or not and it's made up, today it's made up of 45 of the largest districts in Texas. So from Houston, uh, we've got all four corners of the state covered. If you think of an urban metro area, that those districts are a member of it. It's a, We like to think of ourselves as kind of a superintendent-led group. And we, we are a very focused on policy and advocacy, over, on good edu- public education policy, whether it's money, student performance, outcomes, et cetera. Uh, tax relief for property tax owners whatever the issue that 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 has anything to do with public education uh, the alliance attempts to identify what's a priority for for our, our members and what is uh what is feasible what's realistic as a policy matter with their with the texas legislature and i will i will tell you that um you know the we're, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're unique in the sense that we don't take money from sponsors. We, we don't, we don't, we're not beholden to any particular sponsor. We, we have membership dues and we, we engage our superintendents. And And so if you work in the, around the capital on public edu- education issues, then you know, you know of the Alliance. It's been All right. it's a well-respected group. It's, um, we have a, a good reputation and we work closely with members to, to, to create good policy.
1: And and just for perspective, uh, the the members that are in this alliance educate. Uh, I think it's forty one percent of the state's total uh, enrolled students, and so you know we're talking about a very large organization here. Uh, and and you need that scale uh, to to take on the battles uh, that you all routinely have to take on here in this state. Uh, and I would imagine that y'all are gearing up once again uh, for battle because uh, Governor Abbott has spent a long time. You, you could call it a campaign. I mean, he, he went barnstorming the state, uh, you know, months ago talking about uh, what he calls, you know, parent choice, parental choice, uh, ESAs, uh, school vouchers is, is what it is. It's been brought up many times here in Texas. Basically, it takes public tax dollars and gives it to parents so that they can take their kids out of public school off to a private school, a religious school, a charter school. Uh, and and that's been proposed once again. Uh, Dr. Woods, I think I've read before, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that you believe that this is uh, essentially defunding. It, it's an effort to defund public education.
0: Yeah, I, I do believe that, uh, that this is a this is at least in part an effort to to defund public schools. And while leadership would tell you that that's not the case, they're gonna have a hard time, I think, justifying that case, especially if you look at data from other states who've already gone down this road. Um, Arizona, for instance, has been in the news quite a bit in the last several months uh, for funding a, a voucher program and then it coming in hundreds of times more expensive Uh, than the legislature anticipated. And we've seen that replicated state after state after state. So it's hard to, I think it's very hard to conceive that this doesn't ultimately pull dollars out of public schools and perhaps out of other public work. Uh, But because public schools are such a large portion of the state's budget, uh, it's again, it's just hard to imagine that money doesn't eventually come from there to fund this program if it were to grow. But so we have the that possibility
1: of- that they'll, you know, uh, take this up again, that the governor has you know, promised a special session dedicated to this. Of course, we've got this uh, impeachment trial of the uh, attorney general, the suspended attorney general, Kim Paxton, uh, coming up in September. But it's it's likely that after that, we will see this uh, special session devoted to education. Uh, the, the governor couldn't get this pushed through uh, in, in the regular session. Uh, you know the, the the legislature held and said no, we're not doing this. Uh, but he's coming back for more here, and and the question is, does this get done this time?
0: Well, I I don't I can't say whether it gets done. I think the the challenge, of course, for schools and for members of the legislature who care about their public schools is that while vouchers is going to be on the table, there's also the needs of public schools that have gone unaddressed for a while, and that has to do with compensation for staff teachers especially uh that has to do with uh inflationary pressures that everybody has felt in the last three or four years uh school safety funding which it is stunning to me that it, barely a year after Uvalde, uh they adjourned sine die with doing ver- virtually nothing uh, on the school safety front and they would say that that's a mischaracterization and i'm happy to walk through that but i i it's it's correct
2: are, are you uh, really stunned though Dr. Woods, are you really stunned? Oh, come on. I
0: don't think I'm stunned, but I think the level of crassness is, is, is pretty high here. Uh, you know, we we recognize, I mean, think about this, the governor stood up this, this teacher task force, right? Because of the challenges with teacher retention and turnover in, in Texas. Um, and that task force met for months, made a whole list of recommendations to the governor and the leadership and the legislature and essentially, they did virtually nothing uh, along that. So, uh, so yeah, I, I can't say that I'm shocked. Uh, but clearly, those issues in my mind are going to be tied together again uh, when we go into a special in October.
2: Um, think, HD, do you, oh, H-D you look like you want to chime in on that.
3: I, I was just going to say, you know, Jason, your your point about the governor doing a barnstorming tour and making this almost almost between property tax relief and this issue esa's vouchers it was kind of uh those were his campaign stump speech you know core thing core points i guess i've 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 struggled with trying to trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who may support this position and trying to figure out how this is actually good state policy how 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 is this really how uh, is giving taxpayer dollars to any family and allowing that, that whatever the amount is, and let's just use eight thousand, just to just to say it's eight thousand?
1: They've they've talked about that figure, yeah. Yeah, that
3: number's been batted around a little bit.
1: Which is more but than I, they I, give, by the way, per student in public school right now.
3: Yeah, yeah, Yes, sir. If your audience was interested in a school finance session, we can definitely go down that path. We need more beer
2: though. HD, we need more beer for that. We that's a, that's a rabbit hole beer. for another day. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but, but you're right. But let's, let's say for a second, it's eight grand. The way it's been proposed both in, in, in statute during the regular session and just talked about as a, as a policy matter, there is no accountability to it. There is there's there's no way of knowing whether that $8,000 actually impacted the student who left and went to to XYZ private school. There's no way of knowing where that money was how it was spent in in a in a in a in a republican state where conservative values both financially and otherwise are valued. I'm ha- I have a hard time squaring up how that how that is good statewide policy to use that kind of money without any type of accountability or transparency or reporting back as to how did it, did it work, did it not work, and as Brian mentioned, the other states, if for the love of God, we should be learning from what's going on in, in, in Arizona in particular, but other states have gone down this pathway, and, and we're choosing to not, or at least those who are proposing this, are choosing not to learn the lessons that they're learning right now, and they are expensive lessons.
1: HD, on the flip side of that, too, um, you say, you know, there's no accountability if there's this voucher program created. Um, On the other side of that, traditional public schools, even if a voucher system is created, those traditional public schools will still have accountability. They'll still be under a microscope, even if, let's say, they are losing funding because of a voucher program. And, you know, if they start to suffer a little bit in in that time, uh, you know, Lawmakers can go look, see the public schools are failing. We're telling you they're failing, and now we've got to do more vouchers. It's almost like it's 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 catch twenty two, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean it's like I said. There's there's a uh, if you're a conspiracy theorist here, you you start looking at it and say, wait a minute, man, are they setting us up? Are we getting set up here? And the more evidence and the more actions that are being taken, it sure seems like. There's this double standard of okay, public schools, we're gonna hold you to this. I mean, we're gonna keep our thumb on you financially, student academic, you know, academic performance. And then for those that want to voucher, we're just gonna give you money and say, go, go choose where you want your child to go to school. And you know, we're not as a state, we're not gonna monitor that. So so yeah, there's like I said, I just to start this, I I have really tried to put myself in a position, okay, if I were on the other side of this issue and if I wasn't a, a superintendent who's most people just assume I'm going to take this position anyway to protect the, the institution. I've tried to put myself in a position of how do how did this work and why would I support this I can't get there I can't I can't I can't square this up and so uh but it's politics and I think I don't think anybody needs to to be just call it what it is this, this is a political this is not a policy discussion and I tell colleagues Brian and I tell our colleagues a lot you can get really frustrated having this policy discussion because we can win the policy discussion, but we get killed on the political because we don't have the political power that that the governor and others have. So, well, uh,
2: listen, I want to talk about teacher pay in a moment and uh, increasing the basic allotment, uh, for, you know, the, the, the funding that the state gives for for teachers. But l- let me talk a, a tad more about school vouchers here. This is the one thing I can't figure out. You know, it's been whittled down and whittled down and whittled down to. Only a certain number of people can qualify for it, and that still failed, too. And $8,000, I think, was the, was the max, uh, which, as Jason pointed out, is more than the state gives for each student in, in public schools across the state. But at $8,000, which failed, I, I, I just can't imagine there's going to be an exodus of people from public schools, from students from public schools, because you can't spend that money in many places and get a full education except maybe parochial schools. There, there really aren't many other schools where you can spend $8,000 and, and get an education. Do you, do you really expect a lot of students to leave if this somehow were to get passed?
0: I don't know that I think that this is about large numbers of students leaving the public schools. I think it's about subsidizing families who already have their children in private and parochial schools. Um, I, I, you know, I, that is what we've seen. Again, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but looking at what's going on in other states, you see 70 to 80 percent of those taking advantage of the voucher in the first year already had their children enrolled in a private school. So it's not about help. You know, you hear this narrative. Vouchers are about helping poor kids escape uh, low-performing schools. And in fact, that's not what it's about. Because to your point, Jason, $8,000 doesn't help me pay a $20,000 or $30,000 tuition at a private institution, right? If, If I'm a poor family, I can't, I can't cover that Delta. Right. So, uh, so yeah, this is really more about subsidizing those who already have chosen to have their children in a private institution.
1: I would imagine y'all are going to be having a lot of conversations with, uh, rural Republicans, uh, in, in the next couple of months, uh, because, you know, we always hear about this, you know, epic battle that's going on between Democrats and Republicans. When you're in a state like this that has been so long dominated all across the board statewide by one party, which is the Republicans, uh, that's not so much the case. Uh, sometimes you'll see uh, intraparty uh, fights over issues, and this is one of them. And so far, it's those rural Republicans, and in some cases, you know, ex-urban, suburban Republicans, who have held the line on this and said, no, we're not going to do vouchers because in a lot of cases, as we've made the point before, the school is the center of the community. The school district is the biggest employer in the community, and that wouldn't go over very well with their constituents. How many uh, conversations are you all having with these rural Republicans that have sort of
2: held the line on this?
3: Every day. Every day. You guys
2: are talking to these Republican members of the House?
3: Oh, absolutely. So um, there were, and I'm sure you guys know this, when the when the appropriations budget was being debated on the House floor, uh, Abel Herrero, Representative Herrero, offered up an amendment that would basically ban, that would that would prevent any bill, any appropriations bill out of the House to fund ESAs. Right. Well, most Democrats and 24 Republicans voted to support that bill. So that, that told us right away, and most of those 24, not all, as you said, Jason, but most of them are rural Rs. They're, they're rural, mid-size Rs. So we've we've been attempting to um, and I and I'll use the Alliance as an example. The Textical Alliance really doesn't have a lot in common with these rural Rs because all of our districts are urban, suburban, large urban suburbans. However, we have engaged with some of the rural Rs of these 24 or however many they're gonna be and just tried to keep giving them information and sharing with them and how can we support them because the governor and Lieutenant governor and the billionaires who were funding a lot of this are going to primary these guys and they're threatening all. I mean, they're already sending information to their house districts and just beating the hell out of them over not wanting parents to have choice, you know? So we're trying to figure out a way to help support them in their local district and in their local primary next May, excuse me, next spring, but also Here's the information for you to make an informed vote in October, whenever this special session is called. So yes, sir, we're having, matter of fact, I was late to this meeting because I was talking to one of those rural owners. So, um,
2: HD, do you have any indication that, that any of those 24 rural Republicans will change their vote and, and eventually support this?
3: Man, that's, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think this is what I think based on what I've been told, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here. I think those 24 and there were there were actually more Republicans that chose not to take a vote on that amendment. But when push comes to shove, most likely if they vote their district, their House district, they're going to be a no on, on a voucher. So it may be as many as 30, 32. I think there are a handful I think we'd be less than honest with ourselves if we didn't think that the governor has gotten to some of them. The governor's staff is talking to them. They're threatening. Like I said, they're they're making threats. um there's a representative from kind of East Texas He's already drawn two opponents in the in the uh, in the primary. He was a very very vocal supporter or I guess opponent of vouchers. Continues to be. Who uh, is that? Uh, it's Representative Ernest Bells. Bells, yeah. And, and if you haven't talked to that jim he's a he's a unassuming member he doesn't really seek the limelight you're not going to see him at the microphones raising hell he's very smart he's very astute um he does his homework and he understands he, he in my opinion he understands the dynamics of what's happening right now both politically and policy wise and he's a he's a he's a supporter um so anyway i to answer your question yes i think there will be push comes to shove I think if they had to take a vote an up or a down vote on an ESA bill in October which we're asking just so y'all know we're asking the house the chairman and the speaker to separate school funding from vouchers take a vote on school funding let it stand on its own take a vote on ESAs or vouchers whatever you say let it stand on its own I think if that ESA voucher bill were to stand on its own uh, I think most of those 24 would still vote no against it
1: yeah, we'll see uh, how that goes. Uh, again, the governor has put a lot of political capital into this, not to mention the lieutenant governor. Uh, so th- that's going to be an interesting thing to, to watch. Um, let's talk about th- these other issues, though, like teacher pay raises that didn't happen and increasing the amount of money that the state pays per student uh those have been sitting still that that uh, basic allotment's been sitting still since they set it in 2019 uh, you know, we think of all the inflation that has occurred since then. And yet the same amount is still being spent per student here in Texas. Uh, and, uh, you know, teachers aren't seeing a bump in pay either. Uh, and, and, and Dr. Woods, I know you've been vocal about this because, you know, here we are. Uh, lawmakers had almost thirty three billion dollars in extra money to spend in this session. Uh, and they talked about taking care of teachers uh, they talked about education going in, but we haven't seen that yet. We haven't seen that commitment of money to those those areas.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's uh, you know, and again, I, I I would refer to that. The task force stood up by the governor to to address teacher shortage issues, um, and even with thirty three billion in surplus, we couldn't figure out a way to to give some more money to to teachers in our state, which is amazing to me. The uh, so yeah I I mean you know you said it Jason that, you know if you use a comptroller's own number inflation's up about fifteen percent total since since that bill passed House Bill three passed in twenty nineteen um, that cuts into everybody's you know ability to to purchase right and and certainly teachers and school staff are are not exempt from that what you've seen is some districts uh, doing some kind of going out of their way to do local uh, pay increases, uh, but a lot of them are funding that with with deficit funding. You know, districts are passing deficit budgets in in my in my experience, record numbers across the state. Large districts, small districts, rural, urban, uh, deficit budgets have become quite common, uh, and both the basic allotment, a uh, failure to increase the basic allotment, and Uh, a lack of a a willingness to to pay teachers more causing that
1: well there again don't you get into that paradigm where if someone is really really pro-vouchers uh they can you know even though you know they haven't added money per student and even though they haven't given teacher pay raises and the districts are taking care of that themselves and their deficit financing that person can go look these school districts are failing they can't even balance a budget they can't even manage their money
0: yeah. I, you know, like you said earlier, it's it does start to feel like death by a thousand cuts. Right. We'll we'll keep up all the same pressure and regulations on schools, but we'll slowly take away funding over time or fail to increase funding and let inflation do it on its own. Um, and it does it does start to feel like death by a thousand cuts.
2: Just a, a quick refresher. I don't want to get into school finance here, but for our listeners, you seem might to want, want to do that. You've
1: you've tried you to take us you, there. You'll have
2: times. Do y'all have time to get into it? Y'all, if we have time, let's do it. Uh, I've but got for about our, a, I've got about a noon out, and I, I do too. HD I do and too. I can come back and do that. We're not coming but back. We're not coming back. It's <laughs> but, it's, it's it's rough, man. <laughs> for, for for our listeners though, the, the 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 idea here is is that the state gives a chunk of change called the basic allotment right now, I believe it's $6,160 and then property taxpayers pay the rest. And over time that that's shifted where property taxpayers have picked up more of the tab for local schools than, than what the state is, is funding. And I probably don't have to tell you guys this, but you, the listener, not, not, uh, you know, HD or Brian here, but uh, Texas doesn't rank very high when it comes to per pupil spending uh, across the country, there are a lot of states that spend a lot more than us. I believe we're in the 40s somewhere. But but what would what type of a number would 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 keep up with inflation and would get Texas where it needs to be realistically?
3: Yeah, the you know the 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 easy answer to that question is if you just look at inflation since 2019, since that's the last time that the state appropriated additional revenue to schools. It's around 14%, as Brian mentioned earlier. That, to the basic allotment, equates about needing about 900 to to $1,000 of additional revenue to the basic allotment. So the 6140 number, which is our basic allotment right now, would need to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 7140, 7,100. That's just
2: to get us to, to, to par, though, right? That's not to keep that, up with where things are going.
3: Correct. That's just to get... That's just to uh, to address the inflation that has, that we've experienced since two thousand nineteen. Now, that doesn't include what was recommended for teacher compensation, as Brian has mentioned too, is mentioned with the task force. It doesn't mention include money for the special ed. What the special education commission recommended. Um, I mean, there's a there's a, a an additional amount of money that is needed just to address the things our leadership asked to be done. I mean. As Brian said, the governor appointed this task force for teachers, the, the Texas legislature and the governor signed a bill that created to the special education commission. I know we haven't talked about that, but they met during the interim and they said, public schools need X number of dollars for special ed students. There, those were initiatives that were, that were initiated by leadership, who's now choosing to, to not fund it based on whatever, based on their original recommendation.
1: Yeah, so far we haven't seen the action there. And and meantime, uh, you know, a lot of teachers have left the profession. Um, And, and, you know, uh, some of our listeners, some of the people viewing this right now, uh, you know, maybe you're familiar with this. Maybe your child's, one of your child's teachers, maybe the favorite one, uh, has left the profession. And uh, it's getting tough to backfill those positions as well because in some cases fewer people are seeking to go into this
0: profession. Uh, That's a real crisis, isn't it?
3: Oh, yeah, it really uh, is.
0: A, yeah, that's it's a steady. If you look at it, it's a steady increase in those leaving the profession and a steady decline of those entering. And, mm-hmm. you know, so the gap gets wider and wider year over year. Um, and so, you know, hiring has become uh, an absolute crisis, even in uh, the larger districts in the major cities that that generally pay more. Uh, it's become really, really challenging. And it's not just
1: about pay. I mean, pay would certainly help to attract more and retain more. Uh, but Dr. Woods, I know you've talked a, a lot about uh, what what you see as a tax coming from lawmakers aimed at uh, educators. Did you hear about this a lot from teachers when you were a superintendent?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you see it when teachers get pulled in large numbers, right? Tell me about what what adds stress to your work, you know, is it pay? Is it working condition? You know, what is it? Uh, And that, that, that kind of political rhetoric is always in the top few uh, answers uh, of a poll, at least one's done in Texas. So uh, yeah, I think it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, to reconcile. We're going to stand up a teacher retention task force. One of those recommendations, obviously, is to compensate more. um, And then we're going to, do nothing about that because we didn't get what we want on the voucher side right so um yeah the rhetoric for for teachers is is uh, and educators generally i think is really challenging and it creates a bigger problem
1: i have to ask both of you because you all have long careers in public schools and i know that you have to step away at some point but how much did political rhetoric influence your decision? And I don't just mean uh, the political rhetoric coming from Austin. I mean the political rhetoric that has gotten really heated uh, at school board meetings uh, from you know people who are speaking there, as well as the board members themselves. How much of that pushed your decision to go? You know, let me find the exit here.
0: <laughs> I'll say, I'll say, for me, it was it was pretty substantial. Uh, you know. Uh, both the rhetoric in the state to some degree, the rhetoric in the nation, and then how that spills over into local communities, right? Uh, Communities that really had been very harmonious with their school and their school board and the leadership, um, at least small numbers suddenly became, you know, very concerned. And For those who had legitimate concerns, that's one thing, right? You, You can address that for those whose concerns were purely motivated by politics. And I can point to most of the ones we dealt with. Uh, that gets pretty tiresome because they're not trying to solve a problem. They're not working in the best interest of their child, even if they have a child in the system. They're they're pursuing a political agenda. HD.
3: No, I, I none of none of the stressors and pressures was factored into my retirement. I, I was ready to retire. Uh, I'd been in a leave for. 13 years, um, it was time for new leadership, and it was, you know, I was getting to an age where I was ready to do something different. But I, in all sincerity, I, uh, I none of, none of this drove me to, it was not a factor in my decision. And then y'all um,
1: both ended up still doing a lot of this stuff. I mean, it's very adjacent. In fact, you're probably dealing with, you know, the politicians even more now. You could be out fishing. You could have become a Walmart greeter. You could have done a lot of things. What made you decide? Like, you know what? I'm going to stay real close to all of this.
3: I, I, I'm sure Brian. I'm sure Brian probably has a similar experience. I'm still fishing and playing golf. So trust me, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not waking up at four o'clock worrying about whether all my bus drivers showed up or uh, staying up till midnight making sure all the kids got home. But uh, but no, I, I just felt. Um, I, this is me. I, I, when I retired, I retired from the superintendency. I didn't retire from wanting to, to continue trying to be add value to this policy conversation. I, I got involved in the public policy discussion as a superintendent about over a decade ago, and, and I tried to find my footing, and I tried to find my voice, and, 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 it, and, it, and, it, and it worked well for me, and I was able to, to help to, to be parts of conversations over the last decade that I think was helpful. the to the profession and to my district quite bluntly when i was superintendent so i there was no question in my mind that i wanted to stay involved i just didn't know what i was going to do this this alliance gig kind of just happened but yeah i was going to stay involved in it it's too important and i want to i want to say something um on the teacher issue i know you've got a lot of listeners or viewers and probably a lot of them have various points of view about their public school or just public schools in general like how their tax dollars are being used some of them are probably mad at it cuz they think we're trying to indoctrinate every kid into some i mean you probably got them all over the map but I do want to make a point regardless of where you land on your on your on your position on public schools the teacher shortage is a problem and it is use the used or crisis it is a crisis for our for our for our state for your local communities and for our republic and i don't want to get too often to that but but i am i am worried i am i am really worried about what's happening with our local public schools and if the teacher if the if the if the institution of teaching continues to get dismantled the way it's being dismantled we've got a serious problem no matter what you think about vouchers no matter what you think about your school board or your school superintendent you you so I, I hope that people would recognize the fact that quit playing politics and tell the governor and lieutenant governor and others to quit, you know, tying an ESA voucher to teacher compensation. Let's do, this, deal with these policy issues separately, because right now they're holding teacher compensation hostage over a political issue that they want to get passed. And I'm, I'm hoping communities and voters and others that pay attention to this kind of stuff are smart enough to, to begin figuring that out. But anyway, I, want to get
2: well, to the I had to get I two questions left. My, my, I'll ask you my last question first, and I'll ask you my second to last question because it's it's <laughs> last one's related to this. Is there a way to depoliticize the classroom?
0: Yeah, there absolutely is. Um, <laughs> if we can convince uh, members and leaders that uh, it is not in the best interest, the long term interest of our state. To politicize classrooms, what's going on is that you saw this all the way back as far as the Virginia governor's election. They stumbled on this issue and said, "Wow, that really resonates with a group of uh, of folks in the Republican Party." And so you see that that's been replicated all over the country uh, in red states. Um, and I don't I don't know that any of those folks would tell you that they think that the politic politicization of the classroom is in the best interest, long-term interest of, uh, of their state. Uh, it doesn't, you know, we've just been talking about teacher retention. It doesn't help retain teachers. Uh, teachers are going and finding other work. Uh, and if we can't retain high quality teachers, what do we expect about the academic results for our children? Uh, and so the answer is yes, uh, but it involves a, it's a question of political will.
3: I think a lot I think I think a lot of it, Jason, a lot of it, as long as I think just call it what it is. As long as the Republican primary voter in Texas votes on issues like this and this matters to them, it will be politicized. That is that is what's gonna get people those in the Republican Party who 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 subscribe to this, they're gonna that's gonna that's gonna continue to be it's gonna continue to be politicized because it pays off. It it, it Hell, I got a governor in Virginia elected.
2: Yeah, Jason, yeah, do you yeah, want to it, la- ask it, your second to yeah, last let, question? let me ask the now. second to last question. Remember, remember Wheeler, they have a, a hard out here in a few minutes, so don't go on for another thirty minutes <laughs> after this. Here, here's the here's the, uh, the the last topic I wanted to bring up. It's it's the other huge education story in this state that we're all watching. It's Houston ISD, uh, the former Dallas ISD superintendent, the guy from Colorado Springs, Mike Miles was appointed uh, to take over Houston ISD. We've seen all kinds of headlines. The most recent uh, is that he's closing libraries on 17 campuses and turning those library spaces into uh, areas like for in-school suspension. The books are staying on campus, but the libraries themselves are being reapportioned. I'm curious what you guys think. After all of your experience, what do you think this district is going to look like when the state hands it back over to local taxpayers
1: and is this an awkward question because hisd is one of your members uh at the texas school alliance
3: uh i'll take a stab at it they're my they're my next door neighbor i was an a-leaf they sat right next to me right um a couple things strike me one um i this is my personal opinion i thought the takeover of that school system was unwarranted um there were there were. You know, there you could find the statutory and the and the legal bounds for to do it, and the courts upheld that for for TEA. But I I, I think that district was trending in the right direction, both with their their elected board, their new superintendent at the time, things their, their student performance, all that. So with that being said, um, it it seems to me, it seems to me like HISD is being used as a as a um, as an experiment that that it's being kind of played out at a on a large scale, you know Mike Miles, you know he was in Dallas ISD for years, so he's, those of us that are in the alliance are familiar with him and we know him. And, and I don't have anything against Mike. I think he's trying to do I think in his heart of hearts, he's trying to help young kids learn how to read, write, and add subtract. I don't I don't I don't question that. But I think the disruption that's being caused right now is going to take a long time to resolve itself and so whenever it comes time for tea to hand that district back to their local taxpayers what's it going to look like i have no idea i mean i i really don't it, i don't know whether their student performance is going to be greater than it was the day that mike moss took over because their student performance as a district was trending upward i know they had their problem campuses my god we've all got our we all had our problem campuses but i You know whether whether that district gets divided up, whether it gets – I mean, there's all – I don't know. I I really don't know. What I do know is that the disruption that has been created there right now is not healthy for that school system, and it's not healthy for the students and the staff that are still there. That part of it, I don't – it's going to take a long time to overcome that.
2: Brian, what do you think?
0: you You can't have the kind of turnover in leadership that that district has experienced since the takeover was announced and expect that you're going to snap right back, right? I just, I'm not sure I see that. I think if Houston performs better in the future, however you want to define perform, I think there will certainly be a decline in the short to intermediate term, purely because of the the loss of leadership and, and high quality teachers. Uh, so, uh, you know, I I understand that the commissioner and, and, and Superintendent Miles believe that, you know, major disruption is needed, um, but it, that kind of disruption has consequences, uh, and we're seeing some of those early consequences play out now uh, with some very unhappy staff, parents and children. Now, I have two more questions for you all as well, and I'm going to ask
1: the last one last uh, and the next last one right now. Uh, in seriousness uh you know we we touched on uvalde um you know schools a lot of them especially the big districts they're having to pump a lot of their budget right now into covering this new partially funded mandate from the state the state's giving fifteen thousand dollars per campus we have almost nine thousand campuses public schools in, in in this state they're giving fifteen thousand dollars per campus for this required armed security guard now uh We know that that does not cover the cost of a security guard so a lot of these districts are having to come up with that money on their own Uh, that was the big thing though that came out of the legislature with regard to safety you all have headed up big districts i know you worried about these kids every day what are your concerns uh, about kids in this new school year Uh, you know dr woods i know that you said a lot more should have been done here Uh, what are your thoughts about school safety
0: well i think you know, it, even if you take off the table the required for some kind of, the requirement for some kind of armed security person, um, schools were underfunded before Uvalde and certainly since. Given that the agency is going to really ramp up, you know, the safety requirements in schools, schools were funded prior to this session uh, at nine dollars and seventy two cents per child that showed up every day uh, for safety. You got that, that, that funding per safety, nine dollars and seventy-two cents. So what the legislature did in the eighty-eight session that just ended is they went from nine seventy-two to ten dollars per student and then said, Hey, we'll give you fifteen thousand to fund this armed security personnel. Well, I don't most of your listeners they're they gonna need a, a big legal pad to do the math on that. You're you're not hiring anybody for fifteen thousand dollars. Uh, and $10 ahead to comply with all the facility requirements and this new mandate just doesn't cut it uh, and so while it would not be true to say they did nothing to say they did very little with regard to school safety again especially literally they were adjourning the session as the one year anniversary of Uvalde was was passing uh, so to say they did very little is is a completely fair comment
1: Uh, my my last one here is uh, in 2022 we had this uh, we saw this headline Uh, it said in less than four months 10 north texas superintendents announced they are leaving 10 of them at once these were big districts too Uh, you all lead this organization that is superintendent led you're trying to advocate on behalf of schools you've both held that big job you know we're losing superintendents left and right it seems like every time we turn around and 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 obviously there's qualified people who take over but do you worry about brain drain and institutional knowledge and good people you know leaving that top job because it's just a pressure cooker more so than ever before
3: yeah yeah Uh, i mean i worry about it just as a as a former educator that's watching what's happening but i also I'm concerned about it in my in my current role. Uh, you look at the Texas School Alliance, as I mentioned, there's, we're we're the 45 largest districts in Texas, or some of the 45 largest districts in Texas, and and the room looks really different than it did two years ago, including Brian and I. You know, I'm I'm in a different role, but there's there's a lot of uh, young, meaning young in the job, and in some cases, young and just in, in their in their age that are that are extremely smart. I I. I I've been thoroughly impressed with the bench that has been promoted, if you will, that's um, what, but they, they had the same, they have the same problems that Brian and I had when we first got in. We didn't know what we didn't know. And it's one thing to learn the job. It, it, it you know, you have to learn your board and you have to learn your district and you have to learn, get comfortable in your own skin and, and understand it's like any other leadership in any other organization. You have to figure out who you are. What do you believe? And you hold true to those things so that people know who you are and you don't have to recreate yourself every morning that part of it is something that they're struggling with on the other side we have a bunch of superintendents who are saying hd brian how do i get engaged with the with the legislature how do i how do i become someone that they ask you know that they ask their opinion of? i'm spending a lot of time right now a lot of time working with these these i'm using the term young loosely but working with these newer superintendents on how do you how do you play a role and become a trusted source or become a trusted you know someone with an opinion that that people will trust whether they agree with it or not and and that's what we're trying to do um, we say this all the time Brian and I we stand on the shoulders of previous superintendents who got involved in policy matters and legislative matters I watched from afar as a young superintendent how they handled themselves how did they get in you know how did they deal with a lieutenant governor meeting or how they deal with in a, in a in a in a you know an education committee hearing if they're in front of a committee I, I watched all those things and learned and it and it, it it takes some intentionality and so we're working with these superintendents uh with the alliance to, so that they can take the same role in the same mantle, and not only be an effective superintendent in their district but be an effective spokesperson or spokeswoman for the the, the, the profession at the state level it's a lot of work Level. A lot.
2: Yeah,
0: it is a ton of work. Yeah. The only other thing I'd add is I, I think the superintendent turnover is is very much akin to the teacher turnover issue. Right. It's it's and it's not that a district can't find uh, a superintendent, but uh, you're certainly going to find somebody with less experience. Uh, and and eventually that pool is is going to shrink. You know, the, the there there will just be fewer people who uh, are either just flat certified to do the work or have any interest in doing the work right
2: yeah. uh, because it is
0: it is that is that's a challenging role um big job both of us from first hand experience that that's it it's a challenging role
1: Yeah, that is for sure. Uh, Well, so to close things out here, uh, you know, I always like, you know, people, we bring up all these problems. We talk about all these issues and they go, oh, gosh, that was depressing. You know, what am I, you know, what do I take away from that? If you want to see change or if you want to see your way, uh, you vote uh, in elections and in primaries. And if you uh, really want to get involved, you make calls and email your lawmakers and and those who represent you on school boards before you get to those elections. That's that's how it's done. Uh, And I will finish with this. Austin Eastsiders, was a really good competitor to that double shovel pineapple cider from Alaska. So, you know, Texas is holding its own. Why are you shaking your head Whiteley?
2: That's the end of the podcast guys. All right. We're, we're, we're going to sign off now. Hey, Brian and HD. Thanks so much. It was uh, it was enlightening. And you know what, you guys are really frank and candid with us and we sometimes get that. We don't always get that, but uh, thank you for that. And thanks for bringing the beer too. HD. We'll get you a Texas beer next time instead of the Stella. Oh, I bought a whole six-pack of this pineapple beer, by the way, so there's extra.
3: I got Lone long star. I got Lone long star in the fridge, too. So. There you go, <laughs> man.
2: That's old school right there. Gentle- <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Thank y'all.
3: Okay, y'all. The conversation doesn't stop here.
2: Find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Yolitics.